0: And at the end of the day, I was packing up my uh, makeup to go home, and he said, Sandy, he came in the makeup room and he said, Sandy, I'm doing a personal shoot. Would you stay for it? And I said, Okay. He said, It's nude. And I said, Okay. He left the room and then he came back with Gia.
1: Hello and welcome back to Beautiful Lives, the podcast in which I, Madeleine Spencer, am joined by guests to share some of the challenges they faced and triumphs they've enjoyed during their life, as well as touching on the relationship between their inner and outer self and where beauty memories and rituals have had an impact. Today, I'm joined by celebrity makeup artist Sandy Linter. Sandy's career exploded in the mid-70s when Vogue wrote a feature on her makeup style, after which she was highly in demand, regularly making up all the top models of the day. She frequented Studio 54 and was part of the hedonistic lifestyle that characterised that era. She also famously had a love affair with the supermodel Gia Carangi, which started after Sandy posed nude alongside Gia for Chris von Wagenheim. Their relationship was written about in Thing of Beauty by Stephen Freed and was immortalised in the HBO film Gia, starring Angelina Jolie. Today, Sandy is a working makeup artist living in New York, and she joins me on this episode to talk about her career and of her memories of that extraordinary period in the beauty and fashion world. We touched on some topics which might be considered sensitive, so do please be aware of that before listening. Here's Sandy.
0: As a child, I grew up on Staten Island, which was not a very glamorous place to grow up on. So I had my mother who was very, very beautiful, and she would fill the bathroom full of cosmetics. I didn't know this, but she did not know how to use the cosmetics, but she bought them. I remember Revlon. I remember Revlon used to have uh, bottles of green foundation. If your, found, if your skin was too ruddy, you could put this green foundation on and it would make you <laughs> look paler. When I was supposed to be studying for exams, I would find myself in the bathroom applying all her makeup on myself. And I would go to school to take the test and everyone would say, oh, you look so good. What are you wearing? And everything like that. So I had no interest academically. I was always from the age of I'd say 15, Mm. 14, 13 Mm. even, just experimenting with makeup she had Glamour, Vogue, uh, not Madden South, but Glamour and Vogue. Mm. And I'd Mm. go through the pages. And what happened with me was that I was able to see a photo of Jean Shrimpton or Twiggy. Mm. And I'd be
1: able to copy the makeup. And what did you imagine before you had, or even when you were having that dawning of loving makeup, what did you imagine you might be or do with your life?
0: Nothing. I felt very plain as a little girl, mm-hmm. and it made me feel more noticed. It made me feel more glamorous. Uh, my first uh, mascara, I wrote away in 17 magazine, and I got a mascara from Maybelline, which was mm-hmm. frosted blue. I wore it, and I got loads of compliments on it. So, you know, why wouldn't I love makeup? And I was fair, blonde and didn't look anything
1: out of the ordinary except mm-hmm. when I started wearing makeup, getting complimented. Mm-hmm. So so what took you from the girl in Staten Island to working makeup artist at the Kenneth Salon which was a big deal in New York?
0: It was one of the biggest salons in New York. There were mm-hmm. hundreds of famous people. I wanted to live in New York City. I always wanted to live in New York City. And once I got there, I was a secretary in a fabulous place called Raymond Loewy Williams Snaith on Park Avenue. I did everyone's makeup in the bathroom. I was a terrible secretary. Eventually, I got married in 69. And my husband was really smart guy. He said, why don't you get a beauty license? That's all you really care about is makeup. And I did. I went to a Beauty school called Wilford Academy on Broadway, New York City. And I got my license. But during the time I was going to school, I also got a part time job in Bloomingdale's working for Mr. Kenneth's makeup. And I loved working in Bloomingdale's, I loved standing behind the counter. I applied everything on my face and people would go by and just say, I'll have that, that, that. They were buying the makeup off my face. Once a store opened up on Madison Avenue called Boyd Chemist, and they imported their makeup brushes from Paris. Hmm. And once I got my first blush brush, I mean, I was considered an artist. (laughs) It was that simple, like no one really knew what to do. We were all looking around, so it was easy. I was just a kid behind a counter, but I knew more than they did. Mm. So they accepted it, and
1: yeah. and I got to work for the Kenneth uh, Salon. You touched on the fact that Jackie O was one of the Kenneth Salon's customers at the time. I read a really interesting story where you said, um, I think it was the first time you made her up, that there was an issue with a pencil.
0: I was nervous. I went over to do her eyeliner. She was lying back, and I drew the wood from the pencil across her lid. And she went, ah, like that. (laughs) And I looked at the pencil. I forgot to sharpen it. I went back and sharpened it. And she just laid her head back down. She had trust and complete confidence in me. I don't know why. I think because Kenneth had recommended me, there was no problem. I I know what I did to her. I gave her a big smoky eye. Mm -hmm. And particularly because her eyes were wide set. I did the smoky eye and I made it dark in the inner corner of the eye. So it drew the eye closer together. And I used a wine eyeshadow. Did you do a lot of your work based on your instinct? I knew when a lip color wasn't working, the first stroke I'd put on, I'd go, ah, it's not working. And the, the trick I did was I added a lip gloss to it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the minute I added a lip gloss to
1: it, it worked. Your career kind of exploded when you did the beauty editor of Vogue. Well, it took off. I was
0: able to do, you know, I, I did a beauty editor of Vogue called Shirley Lord. And she was asking me all kinds of interesting questions about pigments. I'd never heard the word pigment before. So mm. I didn't know what she was even talking about. And then she did a two-page article on my makeup. And the article was, I still have it somewhere. The Hmm. article was the eyeshadow, the cheeks, and the lips are all in the same hue. So it would be honey, 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 tawny, 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 plum, 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 Hmm. rose, rose, rose. And no one ever did that before. So
1: Hmm. she, that was a big deal, and did a two page article about me in vogue were there any makeup artists at the time that you looked up to i mean i've got this sort of rough list but i know that it wasn't it's a saturated market now but at the time it really wasn't i know way bandy was also working a lot in new york yes was there anyone else Way bandy was
0: an american makeup artist so he worked for all the american magazines my eye looked at the european magazines, so i would be looking at the European Vogues, I would be looking at British Vogue, in particular French Vogue. Mm -hmm. But mainly in British Vogue, the artist that stood out for me always was Barbara Daly. And it's interesting because I connected with her on Instagram. So I love Instagram because of that.
1: So when you were working after that with these different photographers, um, I also have a list of them. And I wondered if you could just touch through kind of your experiences of them as as kind of um, the atmosphere and, and the way that they worked. They're so, so different. Um, Watson,
0: Albert Watson, I met him, I think, in 1976 mm-hmm. on a shoot for Mademoiselle. He was a very personable guy. He would chat with you in the morning. He'd come in and have his tea and sit down, Sandy, how are you? What did you do last night? He was conversational and um, lovely. And Scafullo was um, a little bit more, I would say way more like a judgmental kind of thing He either liked you, and he liked you hard, or he didn't. He either liked your makeup, liked it hard, or he didn't. Mm -hmm. And Way Bandy was his go-to guy. So whenever I got a booking with Scabullo, and I shot my first cover of Vogue with Scabullo, I was always kind of shocked, well, Way must not be available today. But I did do my first cover of Vogue with Scabullo with Karen Mm -hmm. Graham who was a big model of the day, it was 1973. And I think after he did that first cover with me, he relaxed about me and booked me quite often.
1: And the lifestyle surrounding that time is famous was famously a disco party scene, lots and lots going on. Is that really what it was like? Savula so would go to Studio 54. Studio 54 was an amazing
0: place. I have been interviewed about it on the Studio 54 documentary. The thing that made it magical was so many things. It wasn't just a room. The room was amazing. The sound system was amazing. I would put my coat in the coat room like I'd throw it, like I'd Mm -hmm. never care to see it again. And I luckily uh, always did get it back, but I didn't care. And I'd go onto the dance floor, but you'd hear the music was pounding. It was, uh, uh, and it was a room full of spectacular people. Mm-hmm. They filled the room full of all the people you personally would have picked Anne von Furstenberg, Ara Gallant, Andy Warhol, Liza Minnelli, Dale Varyshnikov, Diana Ross. I mean, and then, You didn't care about them. You only cared about yourself and that you were going to have a good time and dance. So that's why those celebrities were able to party there because no one gawked at them. Everyone was a star.
1: And how much did that atmosphere bleed into the shoots you were doing at the time?
0: Of course, you'd work with Chris. I'd be working with Chris on Wagenheim the next day. And I'd go in and unknown, not knowing to me, but I got home so late. So maybe I grabbed the same thing I wore to studio and I'd go to work that day in hot pink spandex and see-through heels mm-hmm. by my projects of Hollywood. And, and the models loved it and Chris loved it. And I don't know if you're familiar with his photographs, but, um, you know, he was an edgy, dark yeah. guy. He took the fence photos of mm-hmm. Gia, and Sandy, naked. Uh, he did that like this. I uh, did a photo shoot for Vogue that day. He brought in one of those big fences that you see in a playground. Put that across his studio, across the set. That was the set that day. And he used the girls. Uh, the girls were in front of this, wire fence and it was uh lisa vale and gia and lisa looked a lot like gia so there were two brunettes similar Mm -hmm. looking and at the end of the day i was packing up my uh makeup to go home and he said sandy he came in the makeup room he said sandy i'm doing a personal shoot would you stay for it and i said okay he said it's nude and i said Okay, he left the room and then he came back with Gia. I decided I was gonna do it. I said I would do it and he left the room real quickly. And then I said, well, I'm keeping my boots on because I'm so short. So I did wear a pair of boots out on the set. And um, I didn't know Gia. I only knew her as a model. I worked with maybe two or three times. So I really didn't know her. And what happened was, you know, I had this vision in my head of Helmut Newton with the two girls, you know, all this French Vogue stuff was through my mind. Of course, we were naked. So it was all different. So I would say within the next day or so, she called me and she asked me out on a date. And I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I didn't know her. I didn't know she was gay. And I really did not get it. But she made sure that I understood it was a date. And I thought, this poor girl, I can't say no. What am I going to sell her? So the date was she wanted me to go with her in her car. And she was very proud of this red little, um, I think it was a Fiat convertible that she had and I'm like oh my god I'm 30 years old 29 30 years old she's like 19 and she thinks she's going to impress me with a convertible it was so adorable I can't even tell you so that's how I said okay fine we went to for a ride to Pierucci mm-hmm. on 59th street where she got one ear pierced and that was sort of when you get, and she was so happy, I'll never forget. When you get one ear pierce, this must have been 1978, it's a signal that you're
1: gay. That's how it started. You consulted on the film, that famous HBO film with Angelina Jolie in yes. about Gia's life. Um, how accurate do you think that depiction was? Did you watch it and feel it was close? So I never watched the whole film. I always promised
0: myself I will one day. I did see enough of it, though. And I know that the... Uh, see, he, when I consulted with them and I told them whatever I knew at the time, I told them, but I had a, I had um, one major cosmetic company that I was working with a lot at the time. It was Estee Lauder with Elizabeth Hurley. Yes. And I knew that if a story came out, first of all, I'd never heard of HBO. This is their first mm-hmm. documentary. I never heard of Angelina Jolie, nor did they ever tell me that Angelina Jolie was going to play Gia. So without knowing both of those things, mm. I said, I can't look on the screen and identify myself. Yeah. Because that could ruin my career. Um, yeah. a lesbian uh, doing drugs with a girl who dies of AIDS, who is a heroin addict. They can do anything with that, anything they want to with it. So even though I was assured by HBO, this is going to be a really good film. Like they knew they had nailed it. I still couldn't let it go. I said, do not portray me exactly as Sandy. Like don't use my name, Mm -hmm. don't use things in the film that, People will like and so they went totally the reverse. <laughs> so that girl is the reverse of me. Actually. In what
1: respects is she the reverse of you? Ah, uh, her look. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I looked, if, if you can, I wore leather. I, everything was skin tight, boots. Yeah. You know, so they made sure that she didn't look like me. So then how do people find out it was you as it was, A book came out in 19, I think 93 film came out in 96. and In the book, they used uh, a few photographs of me with Maya, right, right. And that was called Thing of Beauty by Stephen Freed. Yes. I did not give an interview for that book. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't ready to accept the fact that she was dead. I wasn't mm-hmm. ready to accept the fact that, that AIDS, I lived through a terrible time of thinking I had it myself. And I just wasn't ready to talk about
1: it. It feels like looking at her life in general that you were probably one of the closest people to her, if not the closest person to her. So I wondered from your perspective, if you're recalling or like conjuring her up in your mind, aside from her astounding beauty, which is, I mean, anyone who's ever seen a picture of Gia would know she's incredibly beautiful, but what is it that made her so stand out? What is it that being around her was like? What was
0: being around Gia like? Mm. It depended on her mood. She, she had, had the ability to turn it
2: on and off like that. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: I want to talk to you about disco beauty and the sort of that look that you're doing because I'm, I'm these years that we're talking about are sort of the late 70s to the mid 80s, right? Which is when it was primary like the big colors and, and you said the big scavulo look. So I'm wondering how you define that if I would say to you, could you tell me what to do to my face? What would that mean?
0: Well, it's the ultimate that you could do for your face as far as beauty. So there's kind of like no rules. So no mm-hmm. one's going to say to you, Oh, you can't use glitter. Oh, you can't use lip gloss. Oh, you can't use highlighter. You know, you put all three of those things on. Instead of, it was, it was this um, mentality that everyone had at the time. The makeup should be actually seen. And it should be really seen. And it should be loud and proud. And so that's what disco was all about.
1: And do you feel like disco came at exactly the same time as the AIDS crisis, really? And do you feel like the two sort of went hand in hand or there was a tug between no, no,
0: the two? No, no, no. Disco was first.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: AIDS crisis came... started in 81. Right. I think that's when the New York Times reported that there were 41 cases of AIDS reported mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think it started in 81 because I remember having a phone conversation with Gia. And I said, listen, there's this thing going around and they think it's connected to needles. And You have got to stop. It was called GRID, Gay Men's Health Disease or something. Uh, I did warn her about it, but she was very quiet on the phone. She didn't mm-hmm. say anything. And I took that to mean she was pretty sure she already had it. So I think she knew earlier on than other people think she knew.
1: That was a famously horrendous time. I mean, all around, but particularly in the creative industries, right? Yeah, decimated. And um, living through that, you said that there was a time that you were afraid you had it. Do you feel like it was something that absolutely everyone was was either nervous about or touched by? Was it something everyone was talking about? There's always about? something. There's something that you did that will make you think, oh, I've got it. Oh,
0: there's something that you did and something that will connect you to a person who had AIDS. And so, yeah, I think the people who had done something that was like connecting to a person who got AIDS and died of AIDS, because everyone died in those days and there was no medication. And that's why mm-hmm. I always feel that she, had, she suffered for so long. She suffered knowing it for so long and then being diagnosed and tested and then still nothing to relieve her pain. So the story is horrific.
1: Finishing off on Jia before we move on to anything else, what do you feel like her legacy is? Because it's, it's a, it's a conflicted legacy, isn't it? Where people are kind of fascinated by her, but there's also that tragedy around it and there's quite a lot. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on what you think, would be important to her to go down as?
0: I, I think she was, at the end of the day, I'm very proud of her photo legacy. Right. I. Her, there isn't a bad photo of Gia. I'm very proud of her. She um, worked with every big photographer of the day. They all wanted to, everyone wanted to work with her. And then the cautionary tale there. I mean, she absolutely thought she had handled heroin, she knew how to handle it. And it would never get the best of her. She knew that that was, oh, no, no, no. Cause that's how she was. So when she had been defeated by it, before she got AIDS, um, boy, that's a, that's a cautionary tale. It snuck up on her. And she'll always say that, it did sneak up on her. She said to me once, she was getting dressed and she w- she couldn't really move. And she said, what happened? I have no natural energy. So she had nothing, no natural energy. And she was looking for money to buy heroin. That's a bad state of affairs. And for somebody who was so beautiful and so talented and so gifted, I watched it. So for me to watch a movie, It's just like rubbing it in. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Yeah. You once said, Vanity saved me. It did.
0: Uh, Because when I was doing that 2020 comeback video with Gia, there's a shot of myself and Harry King standing in the background. And I looked, I remember that day. I looked dreadful. I... I was pulled into that shoot the morning of the shoot It was supposed to be my day off and I was exhausted and I only wanted to relax that day. And not, to, and the call came in from Scabulo it's Gia. There's a comeback video. Mm-hmm. I had to pull my act together and get to the studio and feel like, and the strength to, because we weren't speaking anymore. that I was gonna meet her and see her face to face and work with her. And there was so much, and it was a lot for me to deal with. And I'm very, very proud of myself that day, but I looked and felt terrible. So I remember thinking, not then, but maybe a little while after that, that was 82, I think it took me another two years to actually say, I think I need to get a good night's sleep. You know, I need to take care of myself a little bit. I mean, I didn't want to feel badly every day.
1: And um, tell me about how you look after yourself now, like your skin, hair, exercise, well-being. What, what are you into? So I like to keep myself looking thin. So I try to walk a lot.
0: Um, I don't particularly like the gym, but I, you know, we all... I mean, I go to the gym. Recently, on February 23rd, I had a knee replacement. So that has changed me quite a bit. I feel older since I've had this knee replacement. Before the knee replacement, I was walking all over town. But mm-hmm. I had the knee replacement because it was very easy for me to walk, but it wasn't easy for me to stand. Right. And my knee would start to, you know, ache mm-hmm. or whatever. So I did do the knee replacement thing. Taking off my makeup, I mean, I have these beautiful, uh, I mean, I I can get products from anybody, let's face it. Mm. And I'm lazy. I have Mm. these beautiful brushes. I have a makeup, I have a brush by Anissa Brushes. Mm. It's this round face brush. And so whatever uh, makeup remover I'm using, I take this brush, and mm-hmm. it really, really, really gets off every single bit of debris that's on my face. I'm doing makeup, not debris. Yeah. And then, of course, I use the uh, eye tees, the little wipes to get rid of the eye makeup completely. Yeah.
1: And I wondered, did you ever have you ever had any skin issues? Because your skin looks like impeccable now, but were you ever someone who had spots or? Oh, yes. As impeccable. a young
0: kid, 15 years old, I had acne across my forehead. Mm. I, I had no idea how to treat it. Hmm. So my only remedy for that was to wear very thick,
1: heavy bangs. That's when my bangs started. (laughs) (laughs) You've been quite open about um, being a proponent of cosmetic surgery. I wondered um, whether you could tell me a little bit about that.
0: I think as you go through life in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, things happen and change in your face or maybe your body that you don't like. Some things you can live with depends on who you are and some things you can't live with or you want to improve upon. So why not? I don't understand, you know, you're a free person, you can do what you want. And I don't really understand the judgment, the judgment that women get from other women. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't be so judgmental because one day you might want to do something too. And then you will be sorry that you judge somebody because yes, there are people that go overboard, but they're usually people that are excessive people in everything that they do, you know, so it goes along, but there are girls uh, that can do things and they look great. I have clients. I have a client who just had her thighs taken down and she just had her eyelids opened. She's so happy. Why wouldn't you want to make yourself happy? You know, and then it's your private business. You don't have to broadcast it if you don't want to. And so if someone comes up to you and says, how did you lose all that weight from your thighs? And you can tell them you have a new exercise machine if you want to, you don't have to tell them, you can say whatever you want. Uh, But me, I would prefer to lessen the judgmental. You just say, oh, I went to Dr. So-and-so. And so that helps lessen the judgmental issue. And women are doing that more now. They'll share the doctor's names and
1: everything like that. So, you, for everything you've told me about, sort of the way you look in your relationship with it, it speaks to me of someone who's got a really good relationship with their appearance, right? Like a really healthy relationship. Has there ever been a point in your life where you feel like you've lost yourself or you've had to remember who you are in some way physically?
0: Mm. Yes. Um, Yes. There are two stages. One, when I had to clean up my act in the mid-80s, I'd Mm. say that was right about 86, was right around... 84, 85, 86, 87. Those years, I was cleaning up my act, stopping doing the partying, stopping doing the partying drugs. I did go to work looking like a different person. I was no longer Disco Sandy from Studio 54. I was... Somebody, I even took up needlepoint. And so I used to, because it was a long time to wait for the girls during the day after I did the makeup, they got their hair done then they had to get dressed. Mm. So I used to take this needlepoint out and do needlepoint. And I still have friends who remember me from those days and they can't believe how differently I looked and how differently I acted. And I was a different person. Mm. And gradually, little by little, you find a middle ground and you become yourself again somehow.
1: And the other time, you said there were two times? And
0: and now, as I'm in 73, I realized that the whole decade of being in my 60s, um, Mm. when I was 58, I got a Lancôme contract, which was fabulous. I was beauty at every age expert for Lancôme. And so all during my sixties, I had this great window of, I could look ageless and I could, nobody cared about my
1: age. I'm going to finish by asking you the three questions I ask all my guests. The first one being, which achievement, personal or professional, are you the most proud of? Which feels the biggest to you?
0: Oh, the fact that I have had a career since 1973. Mm. in uh and i don't think there's another living makeup artist that can say that
1: do you know what i really don't think there is is there? i
0: don't think there is there are people maybe that work in la maybe in the mute movie industry maybe but i don't think so that's 50 years and two years sandy yeah that's something because even if it's just like an unknown person like it doesn't have to be a famous person that i'm working with that day of course so i'll go to the hair salon and i'm just doing really nice ladies but it's work it always leads to something it leads to another interview which leads Mm. to that or you know so i think i'm
1: very proud of that if you could give some advice to a younger sandy which age would you return to and what advice would you give her i would
0: turned to when I was um, uh, so seriously, when I was just starting working for the magazines, I would have to take it more seriously. I was just enjoying every single day and um, I wasn't protective of my career or my image or anything. I just let it out there, let it flow. Mm which was good, but I suffered a lot of, you know, repercussions.
1: And if you were to have a dinner party and you could invite three people dead or alive, but anyone, who would you invite? Of course I would have. Gia and then, and
0: maybe Chris von Wagenheim.
1: Mm, Okay.
0: another one I would have, uh, that's good. Oh, I would have my mother. (laughs) (laughs) How do you think the three of them would get on? Oh, my mother would. She she was real smart lady. Actually, you're right. That wouldn't really fit. It doesn't really fit. So that would have to be two separate parties. Okay. So it would be Gia, Chris von Wagenheim, and I don't know. I don't know. Somebody I need to ask questions of. Oh, maybe my ex husband.